from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today, we're going to talk about the factors that influence our moods. How, for instance, do the institutions around us inspire us to take action? And how do the things we put into our bodies impact the way we see the world? As usual, we'll be joined by two researchers from very different fields to help us answer these questions. The political scientist and the experimental psychologist, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Did you have sugar in your coffee and a little more in your cereal? If so, dozens of studies indicate that you might be in a bit of a funk today because sugar doesn't improve people's moods. It only leaves them feeling less alert and more tired. And when you were eating breakfast, did you have the morning paper laid out on your table or were you scrolling along with it on your phone? If so, new research suggests that you are a little more likely to be politically engaged and a little more likely to run for public office. We're going to talk about both of these findings today, and then, as usual, we're going to introduce the researchers to one another and ask them to build connections between their work. Joining us from Lancaster University in England is Sandra Sunram Lee. Her team's research, recently published in the journal Neuroscience and Biobehavioral Reviews, was a meta-analysis of 31 studies showing that sugar consumption does not have a beneficial effect on mood. Sandra, welcome to Undisciplined. I'm glad to be here. Also, joining us from the University of Texas at Austin, where he is a postdoctoral fellow at the Annette Strauss Institute for Civic Life and the Center for Media Engagement is Jay Jennings. His recent research shows a striking correlation between declines in local newsroom staffing and political competition in mayoral races. Hi, Jay. I'm glad you're here. Hi. Great to be here. Let's start today by talking about... Sugar. That is the Sugar Rush song from the Japanese girl group AKB48, which is, of course, the theme of a candy-laden video game in the movie Wreck-It Ralph. When you're in a bad mood, does it feel like a little sweet helps? Well, according to my next guest, it doesn't. Writing for the journal Neuroscience and Behavioral Reviews, she and her team revealed that sugar does not improve any aspect of mood and can, in fact, make it worse. Sandra Sunram Lee, it feels like such a given that if you're having a rough day, a little something sweet offers a temporary boost of joy. What made you want to look at this assumption and challenge it? Well, I fully agree. You would think it does. And I have to say, I'm tempted myself to kind of reach for the chocolate if I feel a little bit down. I think we were interested in that because, you know, as with many things about nutrition, there's a lot of assumption and there are myths and people tell you what to eat and not to eat. And the idea of certain things improve your mood, certain things don't. But really, if we want to look at it from a scientific basis and have some kind of scientific basis to these assumptions, the best way really is to pull different studies together and then see what we find. And I've been, you know, looking into the effects of sugar on mood and other aspects of performance for, for ages. So I was just interested to see, is it the truth that we can improve our mood through sugar? And you used data from 31 published studies, they, well, they all pointed in the same direction. If the science is all pretty aligned, how do you think it is that many people still think and still believe that sugar is indeed a mood booster, at least a temporary one? Well, 
I do think we have to remember that we're innate to kind of like sweetness and sugary taste. And they probably make us feel a little bit better for a very, very short period of time because they might target an area of the brain that is associated with the feeling of reward. But when we look at the time frame, that's probably just whilst you're really munching on the sweet. Because after half an hour, we don't actually see any mood improvement. So it's not a long-lasting thing. So it's probably more related to that nice feeling of having something sweet in our mouth. We have lots of wrong ideas about a lot of foods. What's the harm if people have some wrong ideas about sugar too? I think there are two sides to sugar. On the one hand, finding this, it doesn't improve mood or tells us basically that it's not really such a good idea to kind of grab for the sweet thing in the afternoon if you feel a bit tired. Doesn't mean you can't do that and that you can never do it. You know, a little bit of indulging yourself once in a while is fine. Our body actually needs sugar. Our body needs sugar. Our brain needs sugar. It's just about the right quantity and it's about doing everything a little bit in moderation. That's really as far as it goes in terms of nutritional recommendations. It's not necessarily rocket science. What we do see from the studies is that notion of having that pick-me-up through a sweet drink or a sweet food stuff doesn't work. What has been pretty well documented, though, is this crash that happens when people consume those carbohydrates. It lowers alertness within 60 minutes and it increases fatigue within 30 minutes. That's that's a pretty significant effect. And that is backed up by the science, right? That is backed up by the science. And also, it's, it's not surprising when you think about the physiology, how our body tries to maintain homeostasis in the sense of keeping blood sugar levels relatively stable. They're not stable, they still fluctuate. But what we have is we have hormonal responses and these hormonal responses are important because without those, our body actually wouldn't be able to use up the sugar it needs. But what that also means is that our hormonal responses then make sure that the sugar is brought into the cells and our blood sugar levels then crash. And they crash, particularly if we eat sugary foods and carbohydrates that are refined carbohydrates. Without the presence of, say, protein and fats and fiber, then we have this rush in sugar levels in the blood. It's taken up into the bloodstream, it's taken up into the cells, and then we have low blood sugar levels. So that's why it's not a good idea to have these high sugary foods because they won't make you feel better. This study speaks to mood, but I think the other thing people often think about when they think about sugar is hyperactivity. Does sugar have an impact on hyperactivity? I think like in terms of like giving a candy bar to a child, we usually associate that with a child, you know, like running around like a crazy little subhuman. Little mad person, yeah. I know, um, well... I think that's interesting because that's one of the most pervasive myths really about this sugar rush is the fact that we give, you know, sweets to children and they become maniacs. And to be fair, what we need to look at is the situation in which children often consume a lot of sweets. So a very good example is a children's birthday party. And if you have children, I've got a son myself, I can fully vouch for the fact I have to scrape him off the ceiling after a children's party with loads of sweets. 
But the fact is that's probably not the sugar, it's the whole situation. It's a high, you know, high energy, high activation, very exciting for children. And that probably has more to do with this hyperactivity than the consumption of the sugar itself. One more really important question, Nestle or Cadbury? Oh, well, I have to go for Nestle because, you see, I'm not, I'm not British. And I know the British won't like me for that, but Nestle anytime. That's Sandra Soonram Lee. Her recent study, Sugar Rush or Sugar Crash, a meta-analysis of carbohydrate effects on mood, was published in Neuroscience and Behavioral Reviews. Sandra, there's someone I'd like you to meet. Can you stay on the line for just a bit? Absolutely, yes. Let's turn now to... See them advertise the latest rage. Your kitties have their comic page. And here's the latest movie in town. Newspapers. That is the song Get Your Paper from Eddie Fisher, a bit of a celebration of the American newspaper, and as it turns out, a sort of ironic one, because Fisher wound up on the bad side of a lot of publicity, particularly after he divorced Debbie Reynolds to marry Elizabeth Taylor, after Taylor's husband, who was Eddie's best friend, died in a plane crash. But newspapers aren't just good at exposing cads. They're also good at promoting public participation. Or at least that's what those of us who have done time in local newsrooms tell ourselves. Jay Jennings wanted to check on that, and in a new study published in Urban Affairs Review, he and his collaborator, Megan Rubato, from Cleveland State University, suggest it might indeed be as bad as we think. Jay, let's set the stage here. The newspaper business is, well, it's a bit of a mess right now, right? Yes, it is. Um, We're seeing pretty widespread cuts, um, particularly at smaller local newspapers. We know there are consequences to this. You wanted to see if one of those consequences was a shift in the number of people who run for public office. Did you have an inkling that that might be the case already? Was there some sort of anecdotal evidence that made you want to look at that question? We knew we would see political effects, and we thought competition would be one of them specifically. We were actually slightly surprised how big the effect was. We are both political scientists, and we knew that there had to be some sort of effects on local government by not having people there to cover, to be at these meetings, to show what incumbents were doing. We weren't surprised that we saw it, but we were a little surprised at at the size. And what you found was this correlation between reduced newsroom staffing at local newspapers and reduced competition in mayoral races. You said that you were surprised by how big the effect was. So how big was the effect? When you go from a newspaper staff that is kind of normally staffed, um, and we do that, we measure in the number of staff per circulation, uh, you see a pretty big effect in both the number of people running for office and also the victory margin that we see. A victory margin that might go from something like around 20 points to around 60 points when we see a low-staffed newspaper. When we look at the kind of percentage of incumbent-only races, we actually see a much higher, um, maybe twice the probability of an incumbent-only election when we have a low-staffed newspaper. 
So as a former newspaper reporter, I think I would be inclined to think that this is a this is a bad thing, right? Fewer choices for mayor means people are getting worse representation. I suppose there might be another way to look at this. I mean, just playing devil's advocate here, is it possible that the effect you're seeing is the result of the fact that newspapers have a history of stirring up dirt, slinging mud, whatever, and that in fact people in communities that aren't burdened by all that journalism are actually pretty content with their elective representatives and don't see a need to run against them? I'm sure that in, in some instances that might be the case, that it's, it's truly that the incumbent is doing a good job and that's why no one is running. And that this kind of decrease in staffing isn't really um, causing any kind of great harm. But we kind of come down the side that competition is important for democracy. And even if your incumbent is doing a good job, you want someone to be running against them. The more choices that people have, the better we think government will run. A really integral part of that is for newspapers to report and tell the job that people are doing, to highlight what they're doing, to highlight what they could be doing better. All that is something that we think is better for democracy. It gives the people more choices. It also incentivizes your incumbents and people in office to do a better job. There are a lot of other places to take this research. You looked at at mayoral races. You also looked at the effect on voter turnout. What are the most pressing questions you'd like to answer next? The other things we'd really like to get our hands on as far as like other things we can measure is the knowledge that people in these cities have about local government. And, and there's some other research to suggest that when newspapers are either cut, cutting staff or have left the area, that we see less knowledge at the local level about local government. So we don't see people knowing about what's going on in their town or what's going on specifically about government in their town. We'd also like to see what corruption is occurring. There's been also some other research to suggest that corruption may go up as newspaper leave areas. You know, we can see how that might be the case. If no one's kind of watching the store, then why not take the candy? But corruption is also something that's very hard to study because what is being uncovered, it might take the newspaper to be there to do their reporting for us to actually see whether corruption has occurred or not. So, um, and if the newspapers aren't there, the corruption might be happening and we just aren't, you know, unable to see it. And so we'd like to figure out ways to, to study corruption as well. Were there communities where the effect of reduced newspaper staffing, equaling reduced public participation in these mayoral races, where that effect wasn't as strong? And do we have any idea of if that's the case, maybe what are the qualities of those sorts of communities or what are the things that are backfilling the void that is left when newspapers reduce staffing? There were, there was variances in this. And and we know from more anecdotal stories that some communities are doing better at kind of filling in these gaps in different ways. And I'll say that this is kind of another area of future research is that we want to get more into both, A, what's happening more in depth, what's happening in the newspapers, how these newspapers are actually dealing with these reduced staffing cuts, because there may be some that are actually doing a better job of dealing with less staff and kind of being more efficient for the number of people that they have. Um, But there also may be other things in the community that are happening, such as online-only publications or other kind of things along the like next door or something like that that might be helping some communities deal with this better. And so we'd like to do kind of more in-depth interviews and kind of understanding of ways that communities have been kind of filling in these gaps in different ways. That's Jay Jennings. His recent study in Urban Affairs report suggests that communities that lose news reporters often experience a decline in political choices. Jay, you were listening in as I was chatting with Sandra earlier, and she was listening in to you. Are you ready for an introduction? Sure. 
Jay, this is experimental psychologist Sandra Sunram Lee, and Sandra, this is political scientist Jay Jennings. Hi. Nice to meet you, Jay. Nice to meet you, Sandra. Perhaps I could stoke this conversation by pointing out that there are a lot of ways to impact the way people feel about things. Our moods about our day can be impacted by our breakfast choices. Our moods about our political environment can be impacted by our news consumption. And you both understand this, I think, more than a lot of people. So I'm wondering if you become suspect of your own moods and your own choices, if the more correlations you see in your research, the less free will you feel like you actually have in life. What you realize as a researcher is that other people don't care about the things you care about at the same level that you care about them all the time. And so as someone who studies politics in the media, I find it crazy to think that you wouldn't seek out news. But a lot of people are busy and have different things that they are concerned about in their daily life, and they have a lot of things on their plate. When news is not kind of presented in a way that's easily accessible, that people aren't able to carve out that time in their day to do that. And I think that's something that it's easy to forget, and it's good to be reminded of that people need to have the information provided to them. They need to have, have it presented to them in a way that's like easy for them to get and very accessible for them. Well, that's interesting. I think for me, my family will probably tell you that I'm a nightmare to be around when there's any program on nutrition and what you should eat and the latest diet and the latest fad that will make you live for a hundred years. That really, really annoys me because a lot of this stuff that's out there, and in a way, you know, it's kind of you know, the media does play a role there, is that it's just not based on science and some self-styled guru who wants to tell us how to live our lives just comes up with some very bizarre notion of what people should eat and shouldn't eat. I think when it comes to my own lifestyle and how maybe my research affects me is that I do feel guilty when I give my child a sugary drink because I think, oh, I've got hope. Nobody sees me (laughs) because (laughs) I'm the one who tells people not to do that. Um, I've also done stuff on breakfast. I'm one of these people who never have breakfast. Actually, an adult's breakfast is not important. So this whole idea of you have to have a good breakfast to function properly is also not based in science. Jay, let me ask you, are there days that you go without a diet of media? Or do you let yourself, like Sandra lets herself kind of cheat on her sugar intake sometimes? Do you let yourself cheat and get away from the media sometimes also? And does that make you feel guilty at all when you do that, if you do that? There are definitely days that I don't consume news media. Um, I don't know that I feel guilty. I do feel, you know, relieved. I think the things I feel guilty about more are like if there's a tiny runoff election and somehow that I don't know all the candidates or that if one of my friends asked me about what's this local election, that if I don't have the answer to what that is, I haven't done my research on that, then I do feel guilty. And that does happen sometimes. I just wonder, you know, I mean, how you feel about the kind of immenseness and the overwhelming amount of news we are both to these days. I mean, people talk about this whole infobesity idea and whether actually it gets too much. And that can also then lead to the same result that 
people actually don't make choices, people don't engage anymore because the information is just too much. The politics of the day, whatever is happening on the national stage is what people think about when they think about political news. And so if it's fighting between, you know, in in the U.S., between our Congress and our president, or if it's something that our president said that day, or if it's something that a candidate who's going to be running for president said that day, they may get turned off by that idea that, like, I don't need to hear everything that's, you know, been tweeted out or that people are arguing about. And I, I think that I would make, like, a distinction that, you know, we, we need more focus on you know, like closer to home problems. If you tell people that politics is also about, you know, whether your kid's school is better or about whether they're going to put that traffic light at the place where you're always second traffic at or that there's other problems that are closer to you that politics is working to solve, that maybe people wouldn't be as overwhelmed by finding out more information about that as they would be about kind of the emotional kind of effect of being pounded over the head by the kind of national narrative that's being reported on constantly. And I had a question for Sandra, if I, if I may. Yeah. You're essentially kind of trying to get someone to not do something that maybe they'd like to do. I'm trying to get someone to maybe do something that they're not necessarily wanting to do. I kind of wanted to like see what you say about like how it is to like take something that people want, are wanting to do and to kind of say, maybe you should be doing this less, how you deal with that and kind of your communicating your research. That is a very good point. And the difficult bit is always the behavior change, is how can we get people to actually change their behaviors? It's a major challenge. And again, maybe here, there is a little link between <laughs> our different you know, sides of research, is that I think you have to work at the community level. You know, we worked with children because the earlier you, you kind of get these kids on board and you inform these kids about what's good for you, what's not so good for you, whether it's nutrition or whether it's other lifestyle choices, the higher you have a chance to actually, you know, make people change their habits. We have to also make sure that the information we give is appropriate and informative but also try and give that information early on. That's maybe something as well to do in terms of your communication is to get the kids involved, to have, you know, school newspapers, which exist already, but to support that. The Annette Strauss Institute that I work for has a program where we, we work with, with kids in high school and middle, middle school to kind of do projects around civic engagement, ways they can be more involved. The challenge specifically to newspapers is that the model has been changed forever. You know, the Internet and different things have changed the way we're going to be presented information. But I think what we're seeing now is you're going to have to find ways to bring the information to them in new and innovative channels. Where Our research kind of shows that this information is vital and important. I think we also realize that it's not like we can go back to 1995 and expect for them to start doing things that way. We need to find ways to go to them. And there's, there's actually a lot of research out there and people trying to figure better ways for local news to be sustainable and to be innovative and creative in ways that people will, will be able to engage with it more, more effectively. Sandra, I was just thinking, you know, as Jay was talking about the model for news being forever shattered in the last, you know, 20, 25 years, this happened in the food industry as well, or maybe a little further back, but where we industrialized a lot of the production of food and we franchised across the nation, across the world, really the production of food in restaurant settings. And we've seen a course correction since then, people starting to focus more on hyper-local food food and people starting to play with food in new and creative ways and communicate about food in new and creative ways. 
is what happened in food maybe a model in some ways for what might be happening you know in the future as we look at how we're going to rebuild our information infrastructure that's a really good point because we do see you know slowly things are changing and people are you know, getting more into kind of cooking at home as well and thinking about the kind of ingredients they're using, about, you know, local buying, you know, where the food comes from. And I think that might be a a model for, you know, the, the kind of different approach in terms of local news and the interest of people in local news, that they're going kind of, you know, back to basics again a little bit in a new kind of format because like Jay said, you know, we can't undo, we're not going, we can't go back to the 1950s and we can't do that in terms of food as well because we have all these kind of convenience foods available. But as long as we can educate people, then I think that's probably leading to a more healthier lifestyle, yeah. I think it's a really interesting point, I think, about how, we see communities now valuing having small farms in certain areas, things like farmers market, getting support in different ways by communities and saying that this is important for us to spend resources on this because this is an important part of kind of slowing down the process of our food. And I think that, you know, applies to news in a lot of ways. And I think the other thing, we, the thing we've seen in, in food, that there's things like food deserts. And we see that like there's places where, yes, of course, you can get your organic food at in some neighborhoods and in some locations, but people that maybe are less economically privileged may not be able to get access to, to great food. And I think we have to be careful about that with news and information as well, that like, you know, there's the evidence on kind of news deserts as well. I think the idea of these kind of desert zones in different community in different countries is, is a really good one. And I think we need to make sure that the information, be it about news and political ideas and what's going on politically in the community, but also, you know, information about lifestyle choices, including nutrition, crosses these areas and gets into these areas as well. I hate to break up a good conversation, but unfortunately, we are running out of time. Jay Jennings, thank you for joining us on Undisciplined. Thank you. It was great. And Sandra Sunram Lee, thank you. Thank you very much. I very much enjoyed that. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.